This is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Russia wielding one of the biggest weapons in its arsenal in its war. Broader confrontation against the West as well. The Russians cutting off natural gas imports to two NATO countries, Poland and Bulgaria, over their refusal to pay for the gas in rubles. Will the move divide NATO? Is this just the start of Russia weaponizing energy? Also, it was described as a scene out of a movie, an American Marine Corps veteran held in Russia for three years on what were reportedly trumped-up charges. Given freedom today in a prisoner exchange, does this hint of diplomacy mean we are closer to peace overall? Ukraine is two months into its war with Russia. At the end of today's podcast, we'll talk again with a member of Ukraine's parliament who says Russia can be defeated, but more help is needed. We start with the energy wars that play a major backdrop to the shooting war in Ukraine. Russia has made good on threats to stop its natural gas supply to parts of Europe by cutting off the gas to Poland and Bulgaria, and it is threatening to do so to more countries. Phil Flynn is an energy analyst, author of the Energy Report at the Price Futures Group in Chicago. Phil, we are on the uh, cusp of summer, so the the cutoff of Russian gas might not yet create desperate situations in Poland and Bulgaria. But what happens with those two countries and the rest of Europe? I think it's it's a warning shot that things could get a lot worse. I mean, currently right now, if you're looking at the situation, both Poland and Bulgaria, you know, can replace those fuels, but the rest of Europe cannot. Uh, if they decided to cut off supplies to uh, Germany and the rest of Europe, uh, then those supplies just could not be uh, replaced. And, and that's already having an impact here in the United States. We saw the cost of fuels like diesel fuels hit an all-time record high because of this, because of the fear of this. And this is causing a situation where um, we're going to see it at, the, at, at our own gas pump. Uh, and And it could get worse before it gets better. So for now, at least the other companies there have enough to, to move stuff around and, and prop these two up. But past that, if, if another domino falls, then then it's a different ballgame. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. If you cut off supplies of natural gas, Europe has to use other fuels to keep the lights on, right? And if they can't use natural gas, um, they can't build a nuclear power plant overnight. So they're going to have to use dirtier burning fuels like coal and oil. And the problem is, is that the supplies of coal and oil are below normal for this time of year. And because Russia is an exporter of diesel fuel as well, this is creating a kind of a seismic situation in the energy markets that are causing prices to go to an all-time high. And I guess another problem is that it's not like the U.S. is going to come to the rescue with large amounts of oil, because I was just reading the other day that the oil companies here are not really pumping out anymore. I exactly. I mean, right now, the U.S. energy companies have been struggling to raise production and they've faced a very tough regulatory environment where they can't raise production right now. So this is a situation that becomes more difficult uh, uh, for the U.S. Now, uh, the Biden administration saying that the U.S. is going to do whatever they can to help ease the situation. They promise more natural gas supplies. Uh, but yet at the same time, they um, 
haven't really gone to the U.S. energy producers and worked with them to bring on more production. You know, in fact, they've done the opposite. They've kind of put on more regulations, blame them for, you know, when things go wrong uh, and, and saying it's their greed is the reason why they're not picking up more supply. Every time something like this happens, they say, you know what, we have to speed up going green and, and we probably do. But it still is also a reminder that no matter how fast people want to be there, we're nowhere near that yet. Well, you know, and that's the problem, you know, a lot of, you know, I heard some people like from the International Energy Agency saying the problem is that we haven't gone to green fuels fast enough. And I would argue it's the opposite. It's because we move too fast away from fossil fuels. And that's the problem in Europe. Vladimir Putin's a smart guy. He's been planning this for years. And he knew that the green energy transition in Europe uh, you know, was an opportunity for him to get a stranglehold over Europe. And now you see what he's doing with it, right? He's holding the entire continent hostage uh, to either assess to his desires or, or, or freeze or have your lights turn out or have your economy shut down. So this, this is one of the misreadings of this entire situation. You know, listen, the green energy transition, you know, that's a great thing, but you got to base it in reality. And I think we're getting a reality check right now in Russia and the Ukraine. Phil Flynn, energy analyst, author of the Energy Reports at the Price Futures Group. Recent relations between the U.S. and Russia icy, antagonistic as they were during the darkest days of the Cold War, but today a glimmer of diplomacy, two sides working out a deal to exchange prisoners. The U.S. gets back Marine veteran Trevor Reed, who was arrested in Russia in 2019. Russia gets back a drug trafficker who was in prison in Connecticut. Miatek Bodashinsky is a professor of U.S. foreign policy at Pomona College and a former State Department diplomat in Albania and Kosovo. Uh, let me ask you, is there anything positive to read into this prisoner swap? Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. I, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's a confidence-building measure um, to some extent. It's also a sign that the U.S. and uh, Russia still have uh, diplomatic channels to each other, which is important. It's, it's always good to have the channels. Not sure, you know, beyond that, whether it does very much. I mean, it's certainly good politically for, for President Biden and certainly good for, for Mr. Reid's family. Yeah, I was going to say, and you know, I guess there are always expectations that when you have this sort of a breakthrough, and I'm putting that word in quotation marks, that maybe it signals uh, an easing of tensions between the two countries. But uh, historically, this has happened even during the Cold War, right? Even at the coldest yeah. points of the Cold War, we had these exchanges and it didn't do anything uh, at the time to lessen the tensions, right? That's right. It, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a history of this, you know, going back to the Cold War. And then after the Cold War, I think the last time we exchanged prisoners with Russia was in 2010 in Vienna. One of the, the, the people exchanged was Sergei Skripal, who later was poisoned in the UK, allegedly by, by Russian agents. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's it, all countries, and, and they all told me this when I was a, as a diplomat, is your first responsibility is to protect your own citizens. So for us, it was to protect American citizens, and that includes getting Americans out of jail or wrongly imprisoned or in some sort of detention, especially in authoritarian countries. Um, and I think that's probably the same, the same is true for Russia. And so there's a reciprocity here, right? There's a mutual agreement that this is in the two countries' interest. Um, but again, I don't necessarily think it, 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 it's a sign of a broader breakthrough, not at this moment. Does it give more hope for some of the other cases? Uh, I mean, Brittany Griner is, is still detained. And then uh, Paul Whelan, right? That was years ago, espionage charges. Yeah. He said, I'm not a spy. And he's still in like a, a sweatshop. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not clear. I, I would, I would hope so. You know, I don't know enough about those cases. I don't think any of us do. But, but all signs are that those are based on Trump, trumped-up charges, uh, as well. So I, I would hope that that uh, you know, that this will continue. And it, I guess it's a, you know, matter of who we're willing to uh, to exchange. Um, this wasn't a very even exchange if you read into the the Russian guy who was sent there. You, you know, one of the things I think that some people do wonder about is this country says that we don't, for example, uh, we don't negotiate with terrorists, we don't pay uh, ransom money, right? But if there's a quid pro quo, you release somebody, we release somebody, isn't that kind of the same thing? I mean, I think paying a ransom is different, and I don't think we do pay ransoms. I know some other governments do. Um, but yeah, there's a political, there's a political diplomatic uh, piece to this, um, a strategic piece. And, and so you're right about that. Typical in the length, I mean, 2019 for, for Trevor Reed, so years to, to get this done? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know how much the moment mattered and how much, you know, progress was was made in the past. Um, but uh, but yeah, these things uh, sometimes sometimes take take years and, of course, you know, cause great agony to to loved ones. Miatek Modashinsky there, professor of uh, U.S. foreign policy, Pomona College, former State Department diplomat. We'll have a short break and then coming up, a member of Ukraine's parliament tells us what her country needs to defeat Russia. The war does continue as Ukraine's looking for more help and additional resources to fight Russia. So far, Russia has failed to take over Kyiv, the capital, as it now focuses more on the southern and eastern parts of the country. With us again is Kira Rudik, a member of Ukraine's parliament. She has ties to the Bay Area. She was former chief operating officer of Ring. Kira, thanks for uh, being back with us. Where do things stand for your country at the moment? So today is day 63, and... If we are talking about the war in uh, three dimensions, first is uh, what's happening uh, on the ground, second, how the international support looking, and third, like what's going to happen. Let's start with point one. Uh, we, um, we push them away from uh, Kiev, from outskirts of Kiev. However, the attacks on all our cities continue. So it's basically nowhere in Ukraine you can feel safe because even the most Western parts of the country, even the borders with Poland are being attacked. We are actively fighting on the east of the country and it's basically where it's army to army, which is very unusual to Russians uh, because they, um, uh, because they used to fight civilians. The worst place in Ukraine right now is the siege city of Mariupol, where uh, about 100,000 people are being trapped and there is no way to get them out. Uh, different leaders of different countries tried to talk to Putin and uh, get him to allow humanitarian convoys to get out of the city. But every time these negotiations either failed on the time of negotiations or they failed at the time of uh, execution. Basically, Russians cannot stop firing. And right now, the general secretary of the United Nations is coming to Kiev. He promised that he will talk to Putin about 
getting people out. However, I don't think that it's moving anywhere. I do not believe that the humanitarian convoy would happen. In terms of international support, so we see that countries are, they started to actually um, increase their support uh, in terms of weapons and in terms of sanctions. In terms of weapons, we finally are getting uh, what we need. It's still slow, but it's heavy weaponry. And recently on their uh, base, uh, which is called Rammstein in Germany, it's uh, uh, the air base of the United States. Uh, recently there was a meeting of 40 ministers of defense of 40 countries who are supporting Ukraine, and they made the decision to provide us with more and more weapons, because it's basically what we need. The weapons to fight Russians, we are fighting very well, but we need the means every single day. Let me stop you there because because here's uh, a, a sort of a, a, the other side of the coin, which is that your country is getting more support. You're, you're quite right from other countries. You're getting more heavy equipment. The Russians, of course, are stepping up their tactics. For example, they've now cut off, as I'm sure you know, gas supplies to two NATO countries. So they're kind of upping the ante. Are you concerned that as the Russians do then perhaps expand that economic strategy, that the cohesiveness of the Western allies may start tearing? Um, no, I'm not concerned about that. Uh, you see, Russia was always acting like that uh, in terms of uh, the pressure in uh, economic pressure and was using energy as a weapon. It was an illusion to hope that they will continue playing fair. And since last year, we were telling countries that were severely dependent on Russian gas and oil that it's uh, dangerous for their countries, for their people, not even in terms of support or not supporting Ukraine. It's just a matter of uh, Putin using it, uh, using the trade um, connections for gaining more and more political weight in the world. So right now, Germany, France, Italy, and other countries, they need to jump off this uh, needle of Russian gas and oil for their own sake. Because no matter how the world ends, though I believe that we will win, uh, in five months, there will be a heating season in Europe. And I can tell you 100% that Putin either would, will stop uh, supplying the gas even to those countries who paid for it, or he will ramp up the prices, or he will change the rules to say, pay us in rubles or whatever. So, and there, there is again no way to push him to execute on his uh, uh, promises or on, um, on the agreements that he made. What else are in the Russian plans? We've seen movement on, on one of these sham referendums in an area that they occupy. Well, this one is uh, really dangerous because this means that, uh, except of military, they started a political, uh, political approach, and they are trying to add uh, the Kherson city to their conquered territories, where they would, you know, start really operating as as it is theirs, not just a territory where it is war. And uh, this would basically mean that um, we will get off all the negotiations and peaceful negotiations or potential agreements that we are right now. And uh, that would uh, have to make United States and the United Kingdom act faster because 
uh, this is like the actual takeover. As I'm sure you know, historically, most wars uh, do end with some sort of negotiation. Do you have in your mind a uh, an end, an outcome where uh, Ukrainians get pretty much what, what Ukrainians want, but the Russians end up walking away with something that makes them at least somewhat satisfied or that Putin can sell if he needs to sell to his people that it was a victory on the Russian side. Is there some formula that works? Unfortunately, no, uh, for two reasons. First one is that the question would be always the territories that were previously occupied by Russia, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And if they have this uh, shown referendum, then it will add this to the question. So we cannot give up our territories and Russia cannot give up what they think is or what they are selling inside of these their territories. And second is step zero, which means uh, security guarantees or like, any kind of guarantees that Putin will keep his word. You see right now the countries like Turkey, uh, United States, United Kingdom, Italy, Germany, they cannot even make sure that Putin executes on the international agreements uh, uh, for gas supply. How can we all make sure that he will execute on uh, on the peace treaty? So, so no all right, but, but so then in, I want to be clear on this. In your mind then, does this end, is the only way for this conflict to end is with one side being the absolute clear winner and the other side the absolute clear loser? Uh, I think uh, what we are all striving to is uh, Russia to collapse into smaller states, like like the Soviet Union collapsed. This is the only solution that uh, that is feasible right now. There was controversy when our Secretary of Defense said the outcome should be a weakened Russia so they don't try this again. I imagine that's exactly what you're looking for, because especially for that last part, so they don't try this again, because if you leave them in the same place, they're just gonna come back however many years later. Absolutely. Uh, like if we look at it from like a broader perspective, they still have everything they need to be able to produce more and more weapons. They have uh, over 140 uh, million people, so they can like, spare a million easily. And uh, this is like one of the generals. This is what they said that they can like we can we can have a million people who who can die in in your country. So. Uh, without any like systemic approach, uh, the war would continue and there would be always a threat. Is the world's goal to remove threat of Russia for foreseeable future? It needs to be uh, the disassembling of the state, the weakening it, whatever you can call it different ways. Otherwise, uh, the wars would, would continue. Otherwise, there will be always a nuclear threat. Otherwise, it will be always a threat of uh, something like what's happening in Ukraine, something like this war to continue and be repeated elsewhere. Well, what, when, when you say disassembling of the Russian state, what in your mind does that actually look like? I mean, for example, does that include regime change? Does it mean that Putin has to be out? It does not necessarily mean that Putin should be out. Uh, like, remember, like, Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, it uh, uh, collapsed pretty peacefully. And uh, in the new country states where Ukraine actually was one of them, 
um, just uh, defined on their own strategies and on, on their own sovereignty. This needs to happen with Russia. And uh, I know that uh, there is a preliminary understanding of how the new, uh, new countries, the new structure would look like. It will require some time because right now they didn't feel the uh, strength of the sanctions just yet. It would need like, I think, at least half of a year. And this is terrifying because for during this half of a year, my people will have to fight and will be dying and will be using the weapons that we will be getting uh, so win, to win every single day so Russia would uh, collapse. I want to come back to what you were saying about the international response and, and your feelings on it. And yes, more of the weapons are coming through and you need them. But I think when we talked last time, you said something along the lines of, you know, what is the UN for if it can't just provide even simple things like ways out for civilians or that it can't stop Russia in some way from doing something like this? That's why it was built. Correct. And I still stand on this. So uh, General Secretary of United Nations, he came into Turkey first to talk to President Erdogan. Then he went to talk to Putin. And, and right away, there were uh, different statements from him and from Putin's press secretary. So uh, I all, already can see that it will end up with nothing. And now he's coming to Ukraine, probably to see all the atrocities and then say, oh, this is not what Putin told me. So uh, again, we have seen during the last two months that the organizations as they are, they are slow and they are good for nothing. Uh, and the only good way is to talk directly to the countries. So we, all the help and support we are getting from the countries that are our allies, not the organizations that turn to be our allies. And I still stand on my point that UN is good for nothing because in 63 days, they didn't find a way to expel Russia. And what else needs to happen for this decision to be made? Uh, right now, there is no driver there. Uh, right now, there is no, uh, not even, um, you know, initiative to expel Russia. They are all hiding their, um, their heads in the sand, uh, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Kira, thank you again for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Glory to Ukraine. Kira Rudik there, member of Ukraine's uh, parliament. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.